0: God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Our Father, we thank you that you never change Thank you that you are the solid rock upon whom we can rely and trust you with the challenges of this life. Life is so fragile. You said that it is faster than a weaver's shuttle, that it is like the flower that sprouts up and then withers. It's like a breath that appears in a cold day and then is gone. How short, how brief it is in comparison to all of eternity. We pray for one of our families this morning, one of our young moms who's fighting for her life in this car accident, and her daughter. God, we pray your mercy upon her. Thank you that a decade ago she found Christ in this church and she served him faithfully. Father, we know our nation... In many ways it is in a downward spiral away from you. We've ignored your precepts. We've mocked your ways. We've called what you call evil good and what you call good evil. We've reversed what your word says. And you warn us that when a nation no longer acknowledges you as God, that you give them over to a depraved, upside-down mind. But we thank you that though this may be the culture that you have called us to serve in, you are the same and you are faithful. And thank you, the darker the night, the brighter the witness can be. So help us in this new week. Give every campus, within the sound of my voice, opportunity this week to reach out and to care for someone's soul this week. Thank you for the brother that was just baptized because another brother in Christ invited him to come. Father, we thank you this morning for the strength of your word, for its truth. We think of the people in California and the churches there, a state that especially mocks your people. May you help the churches in this hour to be a viable witness as thousands are suffering across that land, help them to point people to the only thing that really lasts forever, and that's the souls of men through faith in Christ. So help me this morning, Father, thank you for your grace that is sufficient, that it is found in weakness, and I ask that you would come and fill me and anoint me and use me today that I might by your spirit point men and women and boys and girls to Jesus, and I ask it in his name, amen. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 16? I want to address the subject, the coming bowls of wrath. Now, we've all heard the expression, it can't get much worse. Well, for those who are alive during this time frame in human history that is described in our text, it's going to get a whole lot worse. When we come to Revelation chapter 16, we discover that the love and the grace and the immense patience of God, that his hesed, his Kesed will give way, his mercy will break and the dam of God's wrath will flow. And really, the only expression of God's wrath that is worse than what we find in Revelation 16 is what we will study when we come to Revelation chapter 20. That is the wrath that is found in the lake of fire. But there's good news in the midst of this bad news because God promises that the church, the body of Christ, will not be here. But after the church is removed, this seven-year period like the world has never ever seen before, it's a graphic gruesome picture, the world is going to have one final wake-up call from God Almighty to repent and to believe. And you could almost hardly believe not believe that it was true unless you read it on the printed pages of Scripture. Jeremiah the prophet who ministered before the Babylonian captivity spoke of a coming day in Israel's history. It's called the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the seven-year period that the revelation unfolds for us. And he says this of that coming time, ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah reminds them that during the tribulation period, during the time of Jacob's trouble, that men will wrap their arms around themselves like a woman giving birth. And that people's faces will become pale at the frightening events that God is going to bring upon the nation. We studied Daniel chapter 12, and if you remember, Michael the archangel came to the prophet Daniel, and again of this coming time, he warned him, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. One of the functions of the Great Tribulation is not only to bring Gentiles who have never heard the gospel before to faith, but to bring the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to confess that Yeshua, Jesus, is indeed the Messiah. Now, let me bring you into the context of chapter 16. There's many new people, and many of us are studying the book of Revelation for the first time, and we're trying to solidify in our mind how the book unfolds. When you come to chapter 4 of the Revelation, after he has spoken to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3... If you remember, a door is opened in heaven, and we see the 24 elders who are worshiping at the throne of God, and we saw 24 was a representative number of the body of Christ. The church has been taken up into heaven. In the fifth chapter, we see the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He has given the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll, in which contained in it is what is called the wrath of the Lamb. And so starting in chapter 6 in verse 1, all the way really through the 18th chapter, you have an expansion of Daniel 9 where you have a schematic of the end times events. It's airing right now on the radio, but if you were not here during our exposition of the prophet Daniel, at least go back and study Daniel 9. It will be critically important for what we're going to study now and the rest of the Revelation. There's a Search the Scriptures app, searchthescriptures.org. You can download it and listen to those messages on Daniel 9 at your leisure. But that schematic is expanded here in chapters 6 through 19. And if you remember, as you work through the Revelation, those judgments come as seal, bowl, and trumpet judgments. And they consecutively follow one another, as this chart will help you to see and chapter 6 through 18 there's a series of 21 judgments and again if you don't understand the architecture of the revelation the book is difficult and challenging to understand but as you read it and reread it it becomes very clear as to what God ha- how God has structured this book if you remember there are seven seals And in the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets. We studied each of those seal judgments. We saw that you could only see them one at a time. And so every time a seal was broken, you'd see the next seal. But when you came to the seventh seal, in the seventh seal were contained seven trumpets. And you could see all seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. And so the reaction of chapter 8 and verse 1... There is 30 minutes of silence in heaven. All the praise and worship stops. People's breath are literally taken away as they see what God is going to do in the trumpet and the bowl judgments. Now, if you were here last time, we studied chapter 15. It's the shortest chapter in the Revelation, so we dedicated just one sermon to it. Today we're going to see these seven angels who are introduced to us in chapter 15 begin to unfold their seven plagues. And remember, the first six seals describe the first half of the tribulation. The trumpet and bowl judgments started the middle of the tribulation. The Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple. He commits what Jesus and Paul and the prophet Daniel speak of, and as John the Apostle describes, the abomination of desolation. And when that event takes place, an expression of God's wrath like the world has never seen begins to unfold. Now, as bad as the trumpets were, they don't even begin to compare to the bold judgments. The sealed judgments, if you remember, represent the first three and a half years. And so Jesus said of those first three and a half years, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And we saw how the Olivet Discourse up until uh, Matthew twenty-four fifteen, where the abomination of desolation is described, up until that, it perfectly parallels the sealed judgments. So the birth pangs are in the first three and a half years, but then the world goes into full labor, as it were, and the second half, described as the great tribulation, begins to unfold. And Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, for believers, those days will be cut short. Now, you know that Jesus is truth incarnate, and no one can ever, ever, ever accuse him of exaggeration. And that's an incredible statement that he makes when you consider all the wars, all the holocausts, all the fires, all the famines, all the tsunamis, all the earthquakes, all the volcanic eruptions. When you think of all the atrocities that have taken place from Adam and Eve until this present day, Jesus said you can add it all together. And it doesn't even begin to compare to this coming time frame in human history. What we are seeing in the world today are not the birth pangs. Some say, well, look at all the earthquakes, and look at all this, and look at all that. This is Matthew 24 being fulfilled. No, it's not. We studied that carefully. Those events are not fulfilled until until the church is taken out. Those are fulfilled in the first half of the tribulation. But what we are seeing today should make your eyes open wide because it alerts you to the fact that indeed this world is pregnant and it's about ready to go into labor. And just as a woman who goes into labor, her birth pangs intensify and increase in time and in pain. So we see that in these sets of three or three sets of judgments, 21 in all. So, so, for instance, when we studied the sealed judgments, you remember that it affected one fourth of the world. When we came to the first four trumpets, we saw 13 times over that the trumpet judgments affected one third of the world. But now we come to the bold judgments and they affect the entire planet. Again, just like Jesus said increasing in the intensity of the judgments. Now, God is getting the earth's attention in the sealed judgments. He is warning the world in the trumpet judgments of the coming eternal wrath. But when you come to the bold judgments, he is bringing a completion of his wrath and his program here on earth. And the bold pronouncements, they fall in rapid succession like a trip hammer blow and one after another bringing the great tribulation tribulation to an end. Now, I think it will take us at least three weeks to get through chapter 16. Today, as you can see, we're going to cover just the uh, first six verses of this chapter. But so that you have a flavor of where it's going, we're going to read today the entire chapter. So follow along in your Bible, Revelation chapter 16, beginning now in verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out the bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, "'Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it.' And I heard the altar saying, "'Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments.' The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory." Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and the water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame." And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called har Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. This is one of the most frightening chapters, I suppose, in all of the Bible. Now, I know sometimes as preachers, we're accused of being too negative. And uh, we're supposed to, I'm told, go around and make everyone feel good. Well, I hate to tell you, this is not one of those feel good chapters. And uh, if you leave today, you probably won't leave, maybe, and you're thinking with a lot of good Joel Osteen positive feelings. But lay that aside. uh, There is much that we can learn from it. It reminds me of that little boy who took his math test, and he came home, and he said, Daddy, I flunked my math test. And his dad said, Son, can't you be just a little more positive in your thinking? To which he said, Okay, Daddy, I'm positive I flunked my math test. Well, I want to tell you, you're going to have some positively negative feelings today. But if you understand those expressions that God gives us in this chapter, you will actually leave with a blessing. Remember, in the opening of this book, in chapter 1 and verse 3, we are promised that those who read, hear, and obey the revelation will indeed be blessed. And so there is much blessing in this chapter if you have eyes to see it. Now, at this point, the world has been ruined by man. He has messed it up so bad. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, has been ruling this world, ruined by man, ruled by the devil, but it is about to be rescued by God Almighty. Look at chapter 15. If you remember, the 15th chapter was kind of the prologue, the introduction to the bowls of wrath. And we read in 15.1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, who had seven plagues. Now that's important. They're called seven plagues in chapter 15, but they're called seven bowls in chapter 16. And God does that for a purpose to help us to see some parallels. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. God's eschatological wrath is finished during the tribulation. When these seven bowls are finished, the tribulation is over and Jesus will come back. Chapters 17 and 18, like some other parentheses that we saw, are a time of reflection to help us to see what was going on during this time. In the 19th chapter, we see the second coming of Jesus Christ. So beginning here in chapter 16, these seven angels with their Seven bowls or seven plagues to whom we were introduced in the last chapter, they step forth to execute the plans that God has for them. So let's examine today at least the first three of these bowls. There's a note taking outline if you're new, it's there in your bulletin. The first bowl is the bowl of the cankerous sores. The bowl of the cankerous sores. Notice again how verse 1 begins, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, now don't ever forget, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, they're added almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed to help us find our way around it. And chapter 15 is closely connected to this chapter. You don't want to miss the flow of thought. Verse 8, in many ways, serves as an introduction. We read in verse 8 of chapter 15, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So this verse is describing a, a transformation that is taking place in God's heavenly temple. Remember, Moses came down off of the mountain, and he was not only given the Decalogue, he was given the blueprint, so to speak, on how to construct the tabernacle. The tabernacle was kind of the portable temple. In fact, sometimes it's called the temple. But later on, David said, look, God's just living in a tent. We need something more permanent. And so he, under Solomon, his son, built a more permanent structure called the temple. But the temple, the tabernacle, we're told in the Bible, was not just randomly designed. It was designed after what God has in heaven, after the tabernacle, after the temple that's in heaven. So here's God. He's in the heavenly tabernacle. And we're told in this verse that smoke is filling the place. And we studied, if you're here for that verse, that the spoke signified the Shekinah glory of God. And we looked at several examples, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And it is so filled at this point. In essence, the Scripture says here, no one was able to enter the temple. It was so filled with smoke as it was as if God was saying, stay out. I am busy. Do not interrupt me. I am about to finish my judgment on this world. And so clearly, since no one is able to enter the temple, this loud voice from the temple must be the voice of God the Father Himself who initiates these horrific, bold judgments. Again in verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. These seven angels are specifically commanded to pour out... On the earth, underscore in your mind the word earth. Pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. It is clear these bowls are not dripped out. They are poured out. They are emptied quickly and without any delay, and they come one after another in quick succession. With the exception of the brief brief pause for explanation in verses 5 and 6, They come very, very quickly. When you come to the 16th chapter, you're at the very end of the seven-year time frame. And what's interesting, as we will see as we walk through all of these bowls, is the striking parallel between these seven plagues And the plagues that came upon the land of Egypt in Moses' day, they're similar in kind, and we will see they are similar in time. If you go back and you study the plagues of Egypt, there are 24 different days that are listed. And with a few of the plagues, for them to have their full effect, there is some time between them. But when you read the whole account, it's a short period of time, only a few months at best. And so like the plagues of Egypt that were real and literal and supernatural, no one can approach the 16th chapter and allegorize these because many of these plagues are quite similar to what happened in Moses's day. There was a heretical edition of the Bible put out some years ago. It was called the Reader's Digest Version. They tried to compress the Bible so you didn't have to read the whole thing. They weren't doing us a favor, but in compressing the Bible into a short edition, they took a very naturalistic approach to the judgments that were unfolded in the Exodus, According to their explanation, there was a volcanic eruption which caused the water to turn poisonous and red. And then in turn, it drove the flo- frogs inland, bringing flies. And, and then they died in heaps and, and it caused the cattle to die. And on and on, they dribble on this naturalistic, so-called scientific explanation as to what happened in Exodus. Of course, that denies the fact that Moses specifically, God's servant, describes these as plagues, and there's no way they can recalculate the 10th plague where God comes through the land, and unless he sees the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorpost and the lentil, the firstborn in every home, whether the firstborn is your grandfather or your firstborn son, the firstborn in every home, be he 80 or eight days old, dies. You cannot rationalize that plague. And to rationalize that plague, you basically, to be consistent, you have to rationalize all the plagues, but you can't do that. Now, let me parenthetically say, that's the liberal apostate, Protestant, and even some Catholic scholars in that day who attacked the Bible. They just kind of write it off. But there are evangelical Christians that teach what's called replacement theology, supersessionism, that says the church has replaced Israel. And if you were here for the very first message I gave in the Revelation, we discovered that there are three approaches to the book of Revelation. One is the preterist view, the other is the historical view, and the third is the futuristic view. And depending which framework you come from will totally determine how you interpret it. The preterist view comes basically out of Roman Catholicism. Augustine, he learned it from Origen said that the church had replaced Israel, that God had no plan for the people of Israel, that the church, in their case, the Roman Catholic Church, as they later taught, was now the true people of God. In fact, to this day, as affirmed in Vatican I and Vatican II, they teach that salvation can only come through the Roman Catholic Church. They might say that you, as a Protestant, can be saved in ignorance. I cannot. Because according to Catholic doctrine, I could read chapter and verse, because I was once a Catholic and officially rejected it, I'm lost. But lay that aside, and that's not my point this morning. Preteris, from the heat Latin word praetor, means past. And so the preterist interpretation says everything you read in the book in the book of Revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, where Jesus comes back at his second coming, is history. They say it all took place before 70 A.D. And then there's the historical interpretation that Luther ascribed to. Calvin was a preterist. Luther was a historicist, and he believed that the book of Revelation was being Fulfilled during church history, and of course, there are historicists today. And depending what century you live in, typically determines how you interpret the Revelation. And so Luther actually believed that the Pope in his day was the literal Antichrist, who's described in the Book of Revelation. Again, with either of those viewpoints, you have to rationalize; you have to allegorize how you approach the Revelation. And there is biblical justification to take it only as a futuristic interpretation. Why? Because the scripture contains within the Bible how to interpret the Bible. And within the Bible, there is a literal grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible that every prophecy for the first coming was literally fulfilled, and that's how we are to take it for the second coming. And so to force these judgments in chapter 16 into some allegorical approach is to write off the plagues in the Exodus, and you're basically coming up with a bunch of hooey. Look again at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth. Underscore that in your thinking because we're going to see that in the bold judgments, it affects the entire planet. There has never, ever, ever been a time in human history, and certainly not before 70 A.D., where there have been judgments and plagues that have come upon the entire planet. And yet when Jesus addresses the seven churches. He warns the church at Philadelphia that because of their faithfulness, they are going to be removed from that time frame because they're true believers a time frame of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. Never, ever, ever has happened in 6,000 years of human history, even with the plagues of the Middle Ages. Never, ever has there been plagues that have come upon the whole planet, and yet that's the description here. Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, if earth doesn't mean earth, then no one can tell what it means, and God may well not have written it, and yet in verse 2, he clarifies very specifically. Look at verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image. It's a sore. It's the Greek word, elkos. Some of your translations render it an abscess. Um, the Net Bible says a painful sore. The Christian Standard Version says a severely painful sore. The Latin Vulgate that Jerome gave us in the 4th century, since that was the language of the scholar, gives us our word ulcer. Uh, The word, though, is the identical word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most of you know that's called the Septuagint. There was a time when the Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew, and the lingua franca of the Jewish race was Greek, so they read the Greek Old Testament. And interestingly, in the Greek Old Testament, the very sores that God laid on the magicians who challenged Moses, it's this identical word. It is a word that describes a malignant, inflamed sore, a sore that can't be healed. And so the word malignant, modifies it, a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped the image. Now, the plain reading of the Revelation is that across the planet, people from every tribe and tongue and nation are saved, and people from every tribe and tongue and nation give allegiance to the Antichrist. And since his followers across the planet, a one-world government, as we'll see in the next two chapters, and a one-world religion, so it is that this plague comes across the entire planet. And this, again, is an indication that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Maybe there's a few who have not yet believed in Jesus, but neither have they taken the mark of the beast. And in these final judgments, they will see, as clear as God could make it, a foretaste of what is going to come in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. In other words, as they see even this plagues of sores that comes only on the followers of the Antichrist, in essence, God is saying, look at what happens to the Antichrist followers. They're plagued with sores, and even this man who has all kinds of miracles coming from his hand, he can't heal them. Now, the Gospels are very clear that in the record of the Lord Jesus, he never failed to heal anyone that he wanted to heal. And it will be shown by the Antichrist's attempts to take the place of Christ, that he is a fake, he is a fraud, he is a phony, he is a false physician. And this, by the way, may signal many of the people of the world, even those who have taken the mark of the beast, that he is a fake, a fraud, and a phony. Why? Because before we're done with this chapter, even many of the followers of the Antichrist are going to amass an army in the battle or the campaign of Armageddon to come against him. But again, this is supernatural in nature. Now, when we come to verse 10, possibly next time, the fifth bowl of darkness is aimed at the throne of the beast. Just like these sores come only on the followers of the Antichrist, that plague, uh, the fifth bowl, will only come on the city of the throne of the beast. Just kind of like the plagues in Egypt. There was a place called the land of Goshen. And in the land of Goshen, they had light. Everywhere else in Egypt, it was utter darkness. Now, some possibly because they've taken a, a, a safe refuge in the wilderness, they will not be affected by these bulls. But... The clear implication of Scripture is that these bold judgments come only on the lost people at this time. They are the people who are first and foremost impacted by these sores. Now, uh, that brings us to the second bold judgment. Beyond that, there's the seven bowl, uh, the second bowl of the contaminated seas. The second bowl of the contaminated seas. Now, with this first sore, God on the outside is really putting on people's bodies a physical representation of what's going on on the inside. They get these malignant sores that really shows in many ways what their hearts are like. But now we come to the contaminated seas and it has a different purpose. Look at verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man, and everything in the sea died. Remember, Jesus described these 21 judgments like a woman in labor. If you were here in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, we studied the trumpet judgments, and in the second trumpet, only a third of the seas were affected. Now, with this cataclysm, it is worldwide. When the second bowl is poured out, all the oceans of the world are fouled like the blood of a corpse. The NASB, if you're using that, is most precise to the Greek New Testament. It reads that the sea became like the blood of a dead man. Now, please follow. It is not using a simile here. It's not saying that the seas became like blood. It says the sea became blood, and the simile is to that of a dead man. A dead man's blood is foul, it's congealing, it's coagulating, and God is saying that the sea waters will match the blood of a dead man. It's going to be absolutely awful. And when this happens, the Bible is clear that all the sea life will die. We just witnessed that hurricane that hit our friends in North Carolina harder than it hit us. And some of the ocean waters came up into some of those towns. And when the ocean waters went out, tens of thousands of fish were left all over the streets in some places. The stench was absolutely horrendous. Well, think about this. All the sea life, all across the oceans will be dead. The stench will be unbelievable. You won't even be able to find a, a brief respite to go for a walk on the beach. Everything will be corrupted. And when you think of the fact that 70% of the earth is covered with seawater, you can begin to see the magnitude of this. Think about the millions of people who will begin to have no food to eat. We've already seen in some of the judgments that preceded this how the food supply was radically diminished by the judgments that came upon the land. Now all the food in the oceans is instantly gone. Imagine the impact that that will have. And imagine the impact we'll even have on the rainwater. Because understand that most rainwater comes from the evaporation from the seas around us. And ultimately, it brings rain to the earth. So every environmentalist will be having a heart attack at this point. One by one, God is tearing down every stronghold that people have leaned on. Their health is destroyed. Their oceans are destroyed. The first bowl is that of canker Sores. The second is that of contaminated seas. You still with me? All right, let's look at the third bowl. The third bowl of the corrupted streams. The third bowl of corrupted streams. We are told now in verse 4 Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Once again, The third bowl is poured out, it speaks of the intensity, it's not dripped out, it's it's poured out, and this is full-blown, unlike in the earlier trumpet that came upon fresh water, only affecting one-third of the fresh waters, all of the fresh water supplies are now contaminated, and they too are like blood. It won't be long. Before all the bottled water, all the stored water are off the supermarket shelves, there's nothing to drink. All of the rivers, all of the springs, all the reservoirs turn to blood. Now, most of you know from sixth grade science that 60% of your body is water. And that's why a human can only go about seven or eight days without any liquid at all before dying. So no doubt... Death from disease and thirst will skyrocket across the planet, and at this point, maybe someone will be thinking, okay, maybe the ocean's fouled, maybe the river's bad, but I've got my well up on top of my mountain in Vermont, and we'll be okay. No, even the well waters are foul. It's a global judgment. It's the worst nightmare the world could ever think of. People will be dying of thirst across the planet. And what do most people do? They are so blind. They are so callous. God keeps bringing these judgments. Do they repent? They blaspheme God Almighty to his face. They recognize that these are judgments from heaven because there are no atheists. There never has been. Don't give a testimony, well, I was an atheist, and I said, well, if there was a God, or I was an agnostic, if there was a God, show me. That is just pride. It's anti-Scripture. You've not even read your Bible clearly. Don't give a testimony like that. Biblically speaking, there's never been an atheist, never been an agnostic, and at this time in human history, the world blasphemes the God of heaven to whom they know exists and who is bringing the source of this. Now, when Jesus comes back, what kind of planet will he come back to? If all the waters are polluted and all these judgments, how will he be able to set up his kingdom? Because he's going to do two things. Number one, when he comes back, one will be taken one will be left, one will be taken, one will be left. Um, some will be left here on the earth, the other will be taken away in judgment. And so you read in the kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13, the good fish are separated from the bad fish, the wheat, the true believers are separated from the tare. The sheep are are separated from the goats who go away in judgment. So God will remove all of the unbelievers across the planet. And again, had He not stopped and intervened, there wouldn't be any Jews left to enter the kingdom, a kingdom that God had promised in the Old Testament. But there will be Gentiles and there will be Jews whom we will see who will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies, and we will be here in our resurrected bodies. We'll see that a little bit later. But not only will he remove all the unbelievers from the earth, he's going to replenish the earth. Remember, Zechariah chapter 14 teaches when the Messiah comes, he's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to split it in two. Listen to Zechariah chapter 14. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. In fact, the waters will be so alive and so replenishing, listen to what the prophet Ezekiel is speaking of the same time when Messiah comes back to reign. He says this, the waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. By the way, has that ever happened in human history? Never, ever, 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 ever. How are the prophecies of the first coming fulfilled? Literally. You say you've got to write off so many Scripture, so much Scripture, and you have to allegorize it or spiritualize it or you say it no longer applies to embrace replacement theology and to say that God is done with the Jewish people. He's not done. And He's not done with their land either. Some of you have been with me to the Dead Sea, and you know they are just like these big blocks of salt that wash up to the edge of the sea. There's zero life in the Dead Sea. Now they came out a month or two ago on, on Fox News and they said, oh, they found life in the Dead Sea. No, they did not. If you went to the Dead Sea in 1989, the first time I saw it, it came right up to the road. Now it's about a mile away from the road. And between the road and where you can actually put your feet and get wet in the Dead Sea, there's a lot of sinkholes that have developed. And then the dirt off of the mountains across the way have blown into some of those sinkholes, and some rainwater has filled up a little bit, and they have found some maybe minute micro- microorganisms. But in the Dead Sea itself, there is absolutely nothing that lives in it. But God says here the waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea for its waters will become fresh Life will flourish wherever this water flows. So the Lord Jesus, through the splitting of this mountain and what's called the living water that flows out of Jerusalem, will replenish all of the water sources on the earth. In fact, the whole planet will be replenished. Isaiah says, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. But at this point in the history of man, the earth is devastated People will wonder, where is the God of compassion and mercy? How could he ever do such a thing? And God anticipates that kind of question and what follows. The truth of the matter is that God has been showing mercy over and over again as we've read chapter after chapter. God has been warning the people of this world to repent. But to help us to understand that what God is doing at this point is absolutely holy and righteous, he brings two witnesses. Let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two witnesses. Notice the first angel in verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. So at this point, he describes the angel of the waters who gives us, in essence, an explanation and a defense that God's judgment is indeed just. By the way, this angel has jurisdiction over the waters. And we will see over and over and over again in the Revelation, even in the subsequent chapters, that angels do much more than what they do for you and I. The Scripture describes them in Hebrews 1 as ministering servants sent out to render service or help to those of us who have salvation. But angels do far more than that. They have all kinds of responsibilities. In fact, the principal responsibilities, at least what God recorded in Scripture for us, is angels are used as God's instruments to carry out His judgment. And so here is this angel... And he says, God is not unjust in what he's doing. Just the opposite is true. Righteous are you who are and who were. Oh, holy one, no sin in you because you judge these things. And to further elaborate on God's righteousness, he says now in verse 6, for they, those, the followers of the Antichrist who took his mark, they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. How terrifying those words are to human ears. But think about what's happened in these seven years. People through the witness of the 144,000 Jews who are saved, through God's two witnesses, and the people that they in turn all lead to Christ, they have been sharing the gospel across the planet. And the prophecy that Jesus made in Matthew 24 is that this gospel during this seven-year period will go out to the ends of the world, and then the end will come. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will have been saved. And as they're saved, they are raped, they are kidnapped, they are executed. Most of them are actually beheaded, the 20th chapter will tell us. They have martyred God's people. They have taken their innocent blood. And now God is going to give them blood like they've never seen. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, these days will be cut short. God will end this. And we're told here that millions of saints, not to mention pastors here called prophets who have come to faith during this time, who have been preaching the word of God, their blood will be taken. Now, again, hold in your minds a biblical definition of the word saint. Every time you see the word saint in the New Testament, you need to ask, what kind of saint is it? Because there are three categories of saints in the Word of God. There's what we call Old Testament saints, as this next diagram shows you. Remember in Psalm 34, "'O fear the Lord, you His saints.'" He's speaking of old covenant believers at that point. Fear the Lord, O you His saints. Then there are what we call church saints. Those are all the people who, once the new covenant was enacted and fulfilled there at Calvary and then brought about through Pentecost 50 days later after the resurrection, you have New Covenant saints. And so, for instance, you have Saul who is persecuting, in Acts chapter 9, the saints in Jerusalem. And that same chapter, you have the Apostle Peter who goes and he visits the saints who live at a place called Lidl. Um When you think of the Corinthians, they are one of the most immature churches in all of the New Testament. So when you think of sainthood, don't think of it the way our Catholic friends do, that only a select group of people in the history of the church have been given the title saint because of some exemplary life they've lived and at least one miracle that they've done. In God's Word, every born-again child of God, even the Corinthians, who had so much messed-up in, in their lives, they are called in the introduction to that first letter, Saints by calling." But the church saints are gone at this point. and so you never see the church mentioned between chapter four and verse, chapter four and verse one through the end of chapter 18. And so you have a third kind of saints, and we call them tribulation saints. And these are people who come to believe in Jesus during the time of the tribulation. And the word hagaios, hagaioi in the plural, they're set apart people. They're set apart as holy. God has imputed righteousness to them. They have not earned it. They have been given it by God Almighty, by His grace and their faith in Him. So again, pulling these two verses together, righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They've shed the blood of God's people, and now through God's poetic justice, He gives them blood to drink. That's all they can drink. If they want to try to wet that dry throat, all they have is blood to drink. You know, when Jesus came, the first miracle He did is He turned the water into wine. And the purpose of that miracle was to draw people to Himself But when God does this miracle, He turns the water into blood to remind people of His righteous judgment that is being expressed on them. He pours it out upon them because they poured out the blood of God's saints. One by one, God is removing every prop, every comfort, everything that mankind leans upon. And now a second witness steps up to the plate. Look now at verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Meaning another angel, at the altar. Some of you, uh, you, your, your Bible translation adds the word another or someone. It's implied in the Greek, uh, but this is another angel. I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God is the Almighty, and He is true, and He is righteous. Everything that he is doing is an expression of how holy and perfect he is. You say, what does this have to do with me today? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, I learned from this chapter of Scripture, from these opening verses, that God will someday make every wrong right because he is just. A day is coming when God will make every wrong right for he is just. Now, remember, the first readers of this book were in 95 AD when John wrote it, and they were the seven churches in chapters two and three. And if you recall the series I did, I did a sermon on every, on every church, did seven sermons just on those two chapters. One of the characteristics all the way through is that God's people in that century were suffering, they were being persecuted. And of course, those seven letters, along with every letter in the New Testament, the, the letter to the church at Rome or Galatia or Corinth, they're written to every born-again believer, not just for those people. They're written for people not just in the first century, but people in the 21st century. And God uses those churches because all of the churches in the New Testament, all of those local assemblies really model all the challenges and difficulties and blessings that God's people have experienced since the inception of the church on Pentecost. But you might be asking, well, what would be the personal benefit of this futuristic section of the book of Revelation, if you lived all the way back in the first century, 95 AD, when you first read this book. Well, the exact same benefit for someone living in the 21st century. Now, remember, these people never lived to begin to even see what God pens here in chapters 6 through 18. And if you think about it for a moment, in 70 AD, as Jesus prophesied, the romans came down it's what daniel also wrote about the prince of the who is to come and he destroyed jerusalem decimated it and there was a few jews who were left in the city and they submitted to roman rule but they got bold about 132 and they had a second revolution called the bar kokba rebellion And Rome put it down in 135 A.D. And from that point on, every Jew, with the exception of those few who are kept as slaves, mostly women, they were all removed from the land of Israel. And for 2,000 years, the Jewish people had been scattered across the planet. So if you're reading this in 95 A.D., most of the Jews were already gone. There was just... A small amount, comparatively speaking, that we're still living in Israel. Yet when you read the Revelation, it presupposes that the Jewish people have been gathered from across the planet. Well, remember, nothing has ever, ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and to catch up his people. All kinds of prophecy needs to take place for the second coming to happen. And so those churches could have easily thought, well... You know, God could take us out of here, and then he could gather the Jewish people from across the planet, and in those final seven years, he could fulfill it. Think about it if you were a Christian just living a 100 years ago. a 100 years ago, there was about 25,000 Jewish people from across the planet. At that time, there were about 7 million Jews on the earth, and in the late 1890s, only 25,000 Jews were living in the land. You might have reasoned, well, you know, God could take us out and then he could gather the Jewish people and bring them in from across the planet and, you know, and make them a nation as he promises to do at the end of time and make them the central focus of the world because all the nations of the world, as the Revelation teaches, are going to go against the Jewish people and he can do all that in the last seven years and he certainly could have. But we are living in the day when God has made them a nation where Jerusalem is now their capital. And according to the prophet Zechariah, it's Jerusalem that is front and center in the city of contention, as we'll see, for the whole world. And he's gathered millions of Jews and he just keeps bringing them every single year. And now 6.6 million Jewish people are living this morning in that place we call Israel. And so if there was ever a time where we should read the Revelation with a sense of expectation, it's the day that we live in. We should have our eyes wide open. Now, certainly, these people in the first century would have immediately benefited from the book because God is giving them comfort through this book as to what he is ultimately going to do with those who hate God His people with those who persecute his people. And that would have brought great comfort. And it would have also brought great comfort that someday God will bring his kingdom to the earth. But understand what is written here in Revelation isn't exclusively written in Revelation. Hold your finger here for a moment and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Some of this scripture is not on slides. You need to turn there turn to 2 Thessalonians. If you're new to the Bible, all the books in the Bible that start with the letter T, they're together. They're all in the New Testament. They go from long to short. The word Thessalonians, longer than the word Timothy, longer than the word Titus. So you have First and 2 Thessalonians. First and 2 Timothy, the book of Titus, they come right after. Graham eats popcorn. Go everywhere preaching Christ, right? Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all the T books in the Bible. There we are. Now, Turn to Second Thessalonians. Go to the first chapter for just a moment. Paul, by if you remember, he is writing believers who thought maybe we misunderstood what Paul taught about the rapture. And one of the reasons they thought that is because some people stood up in the church and they gave a word of prophecy. The problem was they weren't true words of prophecy. And that's why they were to test the spirits because the canon of Scripture was not yet complete. And while God was speaking directly to the church through prophets, that stopped once the Bible was completed. So someone stood up and said, oh, we're in the day of the Lord. The tribulation is here. And then they got a letter as if it were from Paul, and it were not. It was not. And Paul corrected them on how to discern his letters from a fraudulent letter. And they thought, you missed, you're in the great day of the Lord. So they they write Paul, and Paul answers them, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. Add to that, they were being persecuted in the city of Thessalonica like they had never seen before, and they knew that at the end of time, because Jesus had said it in the Gospels, that persecution would intensify like the church had never seen it. So Paul writes here in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, let's pick it up in uh, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater." Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now, notice carefully how verse 5 begins. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He encourages them by giving them a word of promise. This is a plain indication referring to what? to the persecution and affliction he just spoke of in verse 4. The persecution and affliction that they were experiencing, that they were living through, was proof that they were children of God. This is a plain indication that you are considered worthy, or some of your translations say, counted worthy of the kingdom. He is not saying the persecution earned you the kingdom of God. He's saying the persecution proved that you were to be recipients of the coming kingdom. You can only enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said, by being born again. And you can only be born again by grace alone, through faith alone, as he told Nicodemus. But the fact that they were genuinely born-again Christians, that they could be considered uh, as a plain indication as recipients of the coming kingdom, was seen in the fact that when persecution came... They didn't back down. They kept living for Jesus. And listen, all Christians will suffer in some sense, but not all Christians will suffer in the same way. One new Christian said to me not long ago, he said, my phone has stopped ringing. My friends no longer call me anymore. You give your life to Jesus and his friends weren't calling him anymore because he'd go with them to the bars and they'd drink and they'd find women and he wasn't interested in that and he knew that was wrong and he was saying, no, that's wrong, man. I'm, I'm a born again now and we don't want you around, pal. You don't make us feel good. Sometimes Christians are persecuted and that people will say all kinds of evil against you falsely. I've had a lot of things said against me over the years falsely People will say, all kinds of evil against you falsely, on account of me, Jesus said. Paul said to those in Acts chapter 14, those in Lystra and Iconium, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The word tribulation there is the word thalipsis. It's not just a trial through many trials, but through many tribulations. Now, all tribulations are trials, but not all trials are tribulations. Tribulation, thalipsis is the word that's used in the Greek New Testament that describes the pressure of a godless world against God's people. Jesus said this, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, but because of this world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they persecuted you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. You can tell a whole lot about what it takes a, to stop a person. And sometimes you start living for Jesus and people pull away. Someone asked me this week, they said, you, you, you pushed this one Republican lady for office. I did. I said, she's pro-life and she's pro-marriage And he said to me, do you think you could be a registered Democrat and be a good Christian? I said, well, it all depends. I said, let me give you the short answer. If you're registered as a Democrat because you want to go and vote in a Democrat primary to get rid of the person that you think is uh, most qualified to beat someone else who represents a more godly point of view, then okay, I get it. But would I be for a party that in their written document says, we believe that we should murder little babies. We believe that the homosexual lifestyle is a good thing and it needs to be celebrated and embraced. And we believe that we should, in essence, protect uh, our children so they can have safe sex. Listen, this is not a democratic political issue. This is a moral issue. This is a moral issue. And listen, there are Republicans and independents who are in favor of those same wicked things. At least it's not in their platform. But I would never vote for a man who had ascribed those things so that they could give me some kind of financial benefit and give me some health program or some monthly check, as some are now saying. Not on your life. But listen, if you stand for what's right sometimes, you are going to be misunderstood and some people are not going to like you. And Jesus Said that this sometimes will prove whether or not someone's truly considered worthy of the kingdom. It will prove their faith one way or the other. Remember that in the parable of the sower? He said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Gets emotional, comes to church, gets excited. I want to be saved. Yet he really hasn't been converted yet. He has no firm root in himself. He is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. Sometimes believers make superficial conclusions when they see God's people ridiculed, boycotted, harassed, mocked, tortured, imprisoned. And they think, why doesn't God do something? The fact is, is that he is doing something. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, he is proving, he is demonstrating through these persecutions that you have the genuine item no matter what people may do to you. And then he goes on in verse 6 and he gives a word of promise to God's people concerning his vindication of them. For after all, he says, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In the future, when Jesus comes back, he will reverse the fortunes of both the saved and the lost. The saved will be vindicated, but the lost We'll meet God in His retribution, in His punishment, in His vengeance. Understand, it's not revenge. God doesn't exercise revenge. God doesn't have some grudge. He exercises justice that is holy. God made a provision for every man and woman to be saved through the death of His Son. For the atonement of our Savior was unlimited in its scope. But there are some who do not obey, who do not respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and they'll meet God in retribution. Look at verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. By the way, the cults sometimes say, well, there's no hell, or it's not forever. They teach destruction forever. Well, that's annihilation forever. Please know that the Greek word here for destruction does not mean annihilated. Otherwise, he could not say everlasting destruction. You know, thousands of homes, 7,000 homes were annihilated in the last few weeks in California. They are burned to the ground. They exist no more. A man who is in hell is not annihilated. He is conscious He is aware and fully functioning as to what is taking place. And we will study that when we come to the 20th chapter. It is a place of outer darkness. It is a place where there is no fellowship with God and no fellowship with your fellow man. I meet these people say, I don't care if I go to hell. My friend and I, we're going to booze it up and sex it up for all of eternity. I don't need your Christian stuff. There's no fellowship in hell. It's a place of outer darkness that will be revealed when Jesus, at his second coming, will come with his mighty angels and every eye will see him. Listen, he came the first time and he came in humility, but when he comes again, he will come with great power. When he came the first time, the Bible teaches he came, as Isaiah said, as a suffering servant. But when he comes again, he will come with great wrath. He came the first time as a lowly Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But when he comes again, he will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that truth. He will be revealed from heaven. It's the word apocalypsis. And so some call the book of Revelation the apocalypsis because it's about Jesus. It's the unveiling of Jesus. And so back here in Revelation 16, as we read and study these seven bowls of God's judgment, it would have brought comfort an encouragement to God's people even in the first century reading this letter because they knew a time was coming when God's perfect justice would be executed and he would make every right wrong. These are people who had their wives murdered and raped and beaten their children and executed and God says, I'm going to fix it all. Second, God always fulfills his laws of reaping and sowing. God always fulfills his laws of reaping and sowing. The kind of judgment that comes in these bowls are the ultimate expression of God's poetic justice. Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. Do not be deceived. The nature of deception is that when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. That's what makes you deceived. And people are deceived into the laws of sowing and reaping. They think they are doing just fine. They think, man, I can go out and get buzzed and sleep with women I'm not married to and be gay or whatever you want to do. God's not doing anything to me. What they don't understand is the law of sowing says you will reap later than you sow. You put a little tomato seed in the ground, it doesn't come up 10 minutes later. You reap later than you sow. It takes some time to germinate and to sprout and to grow. You will reap like you sow. A tomato seed doesn't produce an orange tree. And you will reap more than you sow because that one little tomato seed will produce 20 pounds of tomatoes. Be sure, Moses wrote, your sins will find you out. God's law of divine retribution is seen throughout every book of the Bible. Pharaoh, he tried to have the little Hebrew baby boys executed and thrown into the Nile River, but he and his entire army was drowned in the Red Sea. Haman, he built a gallows to have Mordecai hung on, and he was hung on the very gallows he built. King Saul he was told by God to go and to wipe out one of the worst people that have walked on the planet, the Amalekites, and he did not obey. And the very people, the Amalekites, that he was to wipe out, they slaughtered him and his three sons and hung him on a wall. And in this second bowl, these people think, we can kill God's people with impunity. And they slaughtered the blood of the saints in this coming day. God says, You'll drink blood. They denied the Creator, and so they're punished by the creation. They rejected the healer, and so they get incurable diseases. They refuse to follow the one who gave himself for him, for them, and so he turned their water into blood. Don't be deceived. Finally, let me just say, if you're not mocked by the Spirit, you'll be mocked for wrath. You see, everyone here has a mark. Everyone within the sound of my voice. You're either mocked by God Almighty. It's called being sealed with the Spirit. That happened the moment, the second, you called upon Jesus in faith. Or you are mocked for condemnation. And if you die marked for condemnation, you will die forever without our Savior. If God had never sent His Son to die, He would have been just. God owed us nothing. But in His grace and His mercy, while He says, for the wages of sin is death, but He says the free gift of God is eternal life to everyone who believes. God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Did you notice? I know we haven't gotten very far into the chapter, but all the way through this chapter, the word poured out. The first angel, verse 2, poured out his bowl. Verse three says the second angel poured out his bowl. Verse four says the third angel, same word, Ekeo, poured out his bowl. The fourth angel poured out his bowl. The fifth angel, Ekeo, poured out his bowl. The sixth angel, Ekeo, poured out his bowl. The seventh angel, Ekeo, poured out his bowl. And what I find so interesting is that the same word that God uses to pour out his wrath is the identical term that he uses when he pours the Spirit out on people on the day of Pentecost. And it's the same word when Paul says, the love of God has been poured out, all within our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit, the moment you believe he's poured out into your heart and as you begin to grow, he bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. But those who refuse Jesus, they will have poured out tribulation wrath that will turn into eternal wrath. Some people get mad at this kind of stuff. Shall not the judge of the world act righteously? The angel says, Righteous are you, O holy one, because you judge these things. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. If someone within the sound of my voice dies and goes to hell and meets God in their wrath, or if you're left behind for the coming tribulation, you will have absolutely no one to blame but yourself. This world is not running aimlessly. We sing it, this is my Father's world, oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And we will see that as we work through these judgments. Why don't you today, if you don't know Christ, let him mark you by his spirit rather than continue to be marked by nature as a child of wrath. Father, thank you for the revelation. Thank you that this is not just what you have said. This is what you are saying that your people in every century since this was penned has benefited and been encouraged. But help us with wide-opened eyes to see how relevant this is as you are setting the stage behind the curtain for the next scene when the rapture will take place and these events will begin to unfold. Help someone today, Father, who is unsure of heaven to call upon him Jesus you said receives sinful men it's a trustworthy statement you said to your servant that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Paul said I'm the greatest of them all one who persecuted even murdered the saints you saved him and planted him on solid ground and made him the great apostle who gave us so many books of the new testament thank you what you do by your grace Help someone, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. He can make you the promise that if you'll call on His name, He'll save you today, right now, forever, because Jesus finished the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. Lord Jesus, save me. Father, help us to see the world through your righteous and holy eyes. Help us to see those loved ones that maybe we'll sit around at the Thanksgiving table with, some of whom have never met you, some relatives we see just on rare occasion. Help us not to hold back. Help us with grace and with wisdom and gentleness to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And help us not just to do it in this week, but throughout the year. Help us to be faithful with the gospel you've entrusted to us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here and you have a public decision to make, remember, Jesus always called people publicly. He knew that if they knew him, They were unashamed of him. They would be willing to confess him before men. If you've never made a public confession of your faith and then expressed that through baptism, I want to give you that opportunity today. Maybe you're here and you're a believer and you've been coming. You know, this is a church where you can grow and you can bring your lost friends to. and You know they're going to hear the gospel or if they're Christians, they can grow with you and you need a church home, well, we need you. If you want to help us, I want to invite you as well to leave and come to this front row. Matt, would you lead us through this great hymn? And if you have a decision to make, step out now and come.